0: If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding.
1: Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real-life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien, and now Nicole Braddock-Bromley.
0: As Mary noted earlier, I did put some hoops on, so I have a whole energy I'm bringing today that's a little bit... (laughs) I love it. A little bit sassy. I'm just kind of a little bit, I'm ready for you, Kat. I mean, I just finished your book, so I feel like, oh, okay, yeah. w- the world may blow up after this. I'm so like, ready to just like tear down the empire.
1: <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we are just really, really grateful that you uh, made some time for the One Voice podcast today. Um... Like I said, I just finished your book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. So Kat Armas, you're our guest today. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is Absolutely. so much fun. And I love hearing from folks who have read the book and, you know, just <laughs> chatting about it.
0: Yeah, well, I really loved your book. I've loved following you on social media um, for the past year or so. I just think you are a voice for this time. I think you are bold. I think you've got this amazing background to you and this, just this spunk, this boldness, this, but also just the brilliance about you. And, um, I just love the things that you're saying, the things you're sharing, you're not willing to back down to things. And, um, yeah, it's just like, when I read your book, I was like, that's, this is exactly who I see on social media. Like this Cuban American woman (laughs) who's gone to seminary, who I don't even understand how you were in the Southern Baptist convention. Like, Wow, like this, there's a lot of pieces to you and it all comes together in this like beautiful, just book of words of your story. And I'm really excited to unpack just about your grandmother, your abuela. Um, Yeah, so I guess a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I will tell you, um, we'll get into it a little bit more. I do want you to share a little bit about you and and just the thesis really of the book. And then we'll unpack more. But as we're getting started, um, just so you're aware, most of our listeners are um, survivors of sexual abuse or human trafficking, just walking out the healing journey. And I think that the message of your book is going to come in really as a survival guide for many of us, because I think the connection to our grandmothers has been really important to many of us. And um, I'm excited to share with you a little bit of how that's kind of come to light for me in the past few months. So, but please share a little bit about your, about yourself and about Abweli to Faith.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Um, That was just beautiful, encouraging words. (laughs) Um, So, as you mentioned, I'm Cuban American, originally from Miami, and I try and, you know, include that a lot in my book, um, because it is very formative um, as to who I am, right? Mm Um, being a Cuban-American from Miami means that I was part of the dominant culture growing up. And so for me, leaving, you know, my little Cuban haven and sort of entering the the rest of the world was a culture shock, particularly as an adult, right? Um, so that's a, a huge part of my story. I was raised Roman Catholic and then... Um, I didn't know anything about denominations or seminaries or, or I was just very, you know, blissfully unaware of all of that. Yeah. And then I ended up at um, a Southern Baptist seminary um, only because again, I didn't know what Southern Baptist was. And I thought New Orleans is a cool place to, you know, learn about God. So I decided to go there. And again, you know, that was another huge culture shock being raised um, by a single mother and a single grandmother. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, being thrust into this, Environment where I have to behave a certain way or act a certain way, or there, you know, in order to be close to God, things have to. Your life has to look a certain way, right. um, and that was very disruptive for me, and of course, you know, brought forth so many existential crises um, because as I reflected on my my childhood and my grandmother's faith and you know, who was very dedicated to the Roman Catholic church and, um, her faith just looked really different and not just hers, but those who, you know, raised me or the women that, that surrounded me, their faith was just wildly different than the faith that I was told was the right kind of faith. Um, and yeah, through my study of, you know, scripture and through, you know, my, I'm, I'm a, I I love theological education, which is funny because in my book, I sort of like rail against it. Like, no, it's lived experience, heady theological doesn't, you know, stuff doesn't matter. Um, But, you know, because I am passionate about both, I try and sort of marry those two things together and say that, you know, argue that we both.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Right. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I just started researching and, and really diving into scripture and that's where I, Came up with the idea of this book, but it wasn't just an idea. It was more so just a reflection a reclaiming of who I am, a reclaiming of my childhood a reclaiming of my grandmother and her faith. And, and I sort of argue in the book, you know, one of my central questions is what if one of the, some of the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all. And I just argue for, you know, marginalized, unnamed, um, you know, unrecognized women in scripture and in our society um, as the greatest theologians that we could encounter, um, but who are not looked up, looked as, you know, as theologians. So that's a little synopsis of that, of my book and a little bit about me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I particularly loved how you even highlighted some of the unnamed women in the Bible or the overlooked women in the Bible. And I think for many of our listeners who do identify as, Christians, as Jesus followers, you know, are, we have heard the story of Tamar so many times and, um, and we really are encouraged by her, you know, just having been named in the Bible, you know, as a victim of sexual violence, that for me growing up helped me just to feel seen, you know, like right. if someone's story like that could be recorded in the Bible, no matter what the story looked like, like right. God said, like it's in here. So mm-hmm. that means like I matter too. right? And then you went on to talk about Rizpah. and I was just floored by that. And I would love for you to even share a little bit about that. I think um, it's a story we don't ever, ever talk about. Right. And, and just the importance, not only just of her story, but just the fact that there are these women in in the Bible who are overlooked, but yet right. the nuance of the Bible is so powerful if we're able to really unpack it and you do it so beautifully.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. So RISPA. <laughs> Um, that's one character in scripture that really, um, she was one of the first, um, you know, stories that captivated me that, that, you know, one of the first ones that I sort of wrote down, um, in the creation of this book. Um, and it was because of the fact that, um, she is. I mean, her story is never told. People don't know her name, you know, like people it's a quick and her story is very quick. You know, if you read it in second Samuel, it's like a couple verses, you know, in two different spots. And I thought it was so interesting because as I, you know, I found it and I don't remember how, but I stumbled upon her story and I read it and what captivated me was not only does she, you know act so bold and courageous as to protest, you know, injustice that's happening. But on top of that, you know, it literally, she gets the attention of the king, the king, King David, she gets his attention. And then King David ends up, you know, paying attention to her, you know, writing some wrongs um, because of her protests. And then I think the the craziest part is that um, God sends rain, you know, after David does the right thing there had been a famine for three years and the famine has ended and it's all because of Rispa's protest. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm like, wait a minute, she changed the course of history and we don't know who she is. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be um, unfortunately so telling of so many women, you know, um, in our, in our society and in the Bible, um, but also just so fascinating about how a woman can have that much, Um, power right um through her bold and courageous um actions and they're bold and courageous and they're scandalous i mean i wrote this book in the midst of of the protest um happening last summer and so i'm reflecting is so
0: like culturally relevant the fact that it just came out when it did. And you were able to include so much of what was going on in our culture and our society. I think it just made it come alive so much more for me. That's good to hear. Yeah.
1: It was hard. (laughs) There was so much I had to change. I was like, oh my gosh, so much is happening. Wow. But to me, that
0: just shows like how anointed it was for such a time as this, like you're writing about all these things and the marginalized finding their voices and that the powerless are the most powerful, like it's an upside down kingdom.
1: Yes. And mm-hmm. yet
0: we're watching it play out, at least if you're watching it with clear eyes.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a difficult thing to do, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're right. I think it just kind of it fit together well, unfortunately, like, I hate to say that, like, yeah, it worked so well, because our society was, you know, but it did, it fit well. Um, and yeah, and I and, you know, going back to Rispa, like just being able to reflect on her story of protest as there, you know, that is such a huge thing happening right now whether it be you know protests literally down my I was living in LA at the time and there were protests down my protests down my street or just you know people women saying you know what I'm done like we're I'm gonna you know use my voice I'm gonna speak up I'm gonna you know um, disrupt things that need to be disrupted so yeah yeah,
0: yeah. I and mean, you wrote um, in your book about how when you actually began telling the truth about your experiences with racism and sexism in the church, You said you were quickly labeled divisive and you wondered why folks were so quick to think that speaking out about things like sexism, racism, abuse, homophobia, ableism, all these things were more divisive than actually being the sexist, the racist, the abusive, homophobic, or ableist. That speaking out isn't what divides. You said instead acting in ways that are divisive does. And I loved how you said that because I feel like that's been, you know, that's the model. I've been speaking out about sexual violence for 20 years now. And 20 years ago, the church surely didn't want to hear, you know, there were, there were many who did, and I'm grateful for those who gave me the platform, but there were many who didn't. And there are many who said this doesn't happen here. Right. Uh, this is important here. Um, And we've come a long way in those 20 years. But obviously, I think in the last four years, we've really seen the polarization in the church and um, continued, you know, religious trauma, people who are struggling with deconstructing because of this kind of belief that we aren't to talk about these things. I'm wondering, like, for one, I think it's so bold for it's for one thing for a white woman to say this, but for, for a brown or black woman to be able to speak about this stuff, I think is a whole new boldness and courage. And I commend you for that. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, what would you say to those who are still of that thinking? Like, how do we shake them? How do we help them see that it is that it is true that, um, you know, I guess what, what I just quoted from your book, that this is the truth. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. oh, I wish that we had like a, you know, a, a formula or something. Handbook, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Um, and, and I commend you as well for, for sticking to this for 20 years because it, you know, it takes that long, you know, at times and longer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women have been, you know, fighting these battles for, for decades and for centuries even, you yeah. know, um, but I think something I remember. So, you know, when I, I started speaking about this publicly um, particularly my experiences in in this particular denomination that I was in and, and just how women were treated. And of course, you know, I was met with backlash. And as I mentioned, you know, that was labeled divisive and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just remember, I kept thinking, you know, there was, there's a verse and I don't remember what verse it is, but it says like, you know, darkness will be exposed or, you know, the darkness will come to light. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, you know, I, I know that, that, the, the truth or, or these things have been in the dark for so long, but I don't believe that they will be forever. I just, you know, I, I believe yeah. that. And because I've met people, you know, like yourself, or I've met other people who are um, exposing it, right. Who are shining a light, you know, who are exposing these things. Um, and it was literally like, I mean, about less than a year later um, that things started exploding, like in, in a lot of the circles that I, that I was in, just a lot of things started coming to light, you know, and the people, a lot of the people who had, you know, sort of unfollowed me or called me divisive or whatever, were now, you know, privately reaching out to me, Hey, do you have any, any resources that I can turn to or, okay. you know? yeah. And for me, I think that that was a hopeful moment um, yeah. because I was like, yeah, see, this is happening, you know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for so long we've um, yeah, we just, it, they've been, in hiding. Um, but I believe that as more of us, or not even just more of us, as we continue, as we persist, you know, I know that's one of the themes in my book is just mm-hmm. persistence. And actually talking about rispa that's something that I so admire from her stories, that she yeah. persisted, mm-hmm. you know, protesting for six months, you know, mm-hmm. and six months months doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're, you know, outdoors, you know, living amongst the wild beasts and the vultures, mm-hmm. and she just stayed out there, she didn't budge, she didn't move, Mm-hmm. Until justice was served, right? Until King David took notice, right. um, and I imagine, you know, someone pitching out their tent outside of somewhere they have to pitch out for for months on months and months on end, you know. Um, so, yeah, and I, I do, I, I, I am hopeful in the sense that um, there are people that are not quitting. You know, those of us are, you know, we're not quitting. We're here to stay. Um, and the more that folks commit, I think other folks will join and see. Oh wait, you know things are happening. Um, So to answer your question, I feel like I didn't answer it. What would I tell? Uh, You did because
0: I think it's important that we keep sharing our stories. I think that's where it's like, And it doesn't mean we're all doing it in the form of a protest, like a public one, or it's not where we're like on stages always, but it is a matter of continuing to show up to persist, like you said, and to not back down to the dominant culture saying that, you know, this won't ever make a difference. This change will never be seen here because I think we are seeing that change, change can happen. And right. I think even your book, you know, the, the the Abuelita Theology and how over the course of generations we see change. And yeah. I had mentioned how I was really thinking a lot lately about my grandmother and the influence that she's had on me. And while she was alive, I never really saw it. And now right, she's right. passed. Um, and just working on my own healing and therapy and things like that. I've, I've really thought about her a lot. You know, my grandmother was 16 and pregnant by a 30 year old man and had her baby, which was my oldest aunt. And, mm-hmm. um, Proceeded to have more children. She worked really hard. She was a single mom at many moments. Mm -hmm. She then married an alcoholic, was a victim of domestic violence, you know, so many things in her life, yet she was incredibly generous. She always saw the underdog at her workplace. She harbored lots of other women who were in domestic violence situations. When I told about my abuse at 14 years old, she hid me and my mother in her home while Mm -hmm. we were being hunted down by my abuser. Then Mm -hmm. when I started One Voice, my organization, right out Mm -hmm. of college, she let me live in her attic while I started a business. Like all these things. Like she's such an amazing woman. When I look at her persistence, when I look at her hospitality, her generosity, and it was so often overlooked because I grew up in a very conservative um, evangelical Christian church where there's certain people who are elevated to be your examples of what it is. And it was pretty much all white men pastors who then many of them later ended up having major scandals and people I definitely would never trust with my children. But yet I look at my grandmother and I think, wow, the things that she taught me about loving others, the things that we talked about on the porch swing, Mm. um, the moments in the kitchen when she's, you know, making ham and bean
1: soup. That's all we need. Theology, right there. That's <laughs> it. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's so
0: crazy because I've been talking and really thinking about this a lot before I even picked up your book, and then I started reading it, and I just at moments I really sobbed, thinking about mm-hmm. your grandmother, your abuela. I'd love for you to share a little bit about the influence that she had on you. Yeah, I know there's a lot. I mean, um, there's like yeah. 200 pages, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're uh, well, thinking you. about healing, I'll, I'll right. give you another another piece before you answer many, many trauma survivors like myself, um, hold really deep mother wounds. Mm -hmm. You know, the moms that didn't believe the moms that, um, said, well, we all go through this and it's just a generational thing. Um, I think that, that the abuela's memory can really bring
1: healing to some of that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, I I mean I agree. And I think I, I love that what you shared because it is the essence of what Awalita theology is. It's it's you know, it's I say it's not lofty, but it's informal and it happens around the table and it happens on the porch swing. Okay. And that's where we, you know, receive our some of our deepest spiritual formation is in those moments. Okay. Um and also one of the things that I really focus a lot on is the idea of survival. And so, you know, I love that you're talking about, you know, survivors and surviving Um, because something that I, you know, as I was reflecting on this and writing this book, you know, one of the the central things that just kept hitting me was survival is holy survival in and of itself. The sacred act of surviving is a holy and sacred act. Um, And I think that it's in that, you know, um, where we learn so much, where we, um, you know, as your grandmother was, you know, surviving, you know, as she was day in and day out um, and, and you were watching her do that. I think that that right there is such, um, it's a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. And it's, it's something where it's where God, you know, shows up so clearly, um, you know, for those of us who, who are, who want to see God in these spaces, right. Or who are looking for God in these spaces. And I think that's something that I learned so much from my grandmother, mm-hmm you know my grandmother she didn't have she didn't know the right way to interpret a bible passage or she didn't you know like she didn't have all these like oh this is what it what it's supposed to look like or this is what robust faith is supposed i mean she literally just lived her life and she survived and she paid the bills and she you know started her own business from home and she cooked for the community and she sewed clothes for the community and she, you know like she just lived her life but it was a life Um, that was embodied. It was embodied. And in her embodying, you know, these values and these things and being her true full self and her, again, surviving, um, you know, raising children as a widow, you know, all the things that so many of our grandmothers, um, you know, so so many of them did, right. Um, It was in that where I, I learned so much about God, you know, and then when I look at scripture, I realized like, wait a minute, this is the story of most of the women in the Bible, right? Like they're just trying to live. Like we, you know, like over spiritualize their stories, you know, for example, the story of Ruth and Naomi. Oh, and Boaz and this, okay. (laughs) You know, Ruth literally just told Naomi, go over there, do this because you need to be married because we need to live because if we're widows, then we're going to die. So, you know, and I, I, I just find that to be honestly so profound. And that's where we can learn so much from folks on the margins or or folks who have gone through things that, um, yeah, the white dude will never go through, right? Um, (laughs) Those with power and privilege. And and of course, you know, power, we all have varying levels of power and privilege. But but yeah, so I think that that's something I learned so much from my abuela, just um, mm -hmm. how survival is beautiful and it is holy and it is sacred. um, And it doesn't have to be this lofty thing. It can be as, um, as informal or as yeah, sitting around the table or, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, but it's also embodied. And I think that that's something, you know, like I even think of when you said that your, your grandmother took you and your mother in, you know, that is a, that is a sacred embodied act. You know, she literally took you in and literally fed you and literally, and these are things that, I mean, she didn't have to think about too much or, you know, it was just, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to, you know, do what we have to do to, to, to survive. And so, yeah, yeah, I think those are some of the things that I learned a lot from my grandmother. Um, And also, you know, the this idea of survival and this idea of strength and this idea of persistence, as we were speaking of before, um, is a generational thing. And, and you know, and I, I do focus a lot on, on ancestors, right? And, and what we can glean from our ancestors in the book. And I think that that's also huge. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of so many women who have done this before us, um, and yeah. that's the only reason why we're still here, why we're still doing it, why we're still you know fighting the fight. Um, yeah. because we come from a legacy of survivors, um, so legacy true. of women in scripture and beyond.
0: That was a, a really big
1: shift for me because so much of my life, my
0: upbringing was focused on generational sin mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, we're drawing right. a line in the sand and this won't continue. And so I looked back at so much of my ancestry, you know, there was so much poverty and, you right. know, Addiction and just all the yucky things that, you know, brought me to this day. And like, nope, it's not going to be like that anymore. No more abuse, no more this, no more that. But then I, yeah, just looking at my grandmother and reading your book helped me to really think, wow, like there is a real legacy of resiliency. Right. Um, our stories are messy. And so were the women's stories in the Bible. Right. Right. And life is hard now. Life was hard then. And yeah they were doing what they needed to survive. Right. My ancestors all the way back to the biblical days, you know, mm-hmm. and yet God blessed it even when yeah. it wasn't righteous, even right, when right. their choices were not what you would label clean and pure. Exactly. Like they did what they had to do to survive. And God said, yeah, girl.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's what I find just so fascinating about so many of the stories in the Bible. It's that they're like so scandalous and they're <laughs> stories that nowadays we wouldn't be like, yeah, look at that role model. She lied. Mm-hmm. She pretended she was, the, you know, she did this <laughs> or like, right. you know, we wouldn't repeat them, but mm-hmm. not only are they, you know, in the Bible, but God is like, awesome. Yes. You know, they're blessed by God. Um, and they're, you know, they even come out in like genealogies, like a lot of these women, they're even in the genealogy of Jesus, which is like even more so a stamp of approval. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, black or white, or it's not very simplistic as much of, you know, evangelicalism wants to say that faith is or life. I love that. And, and just the, the healing that can
0: come through the maternal, um, Mm. you know, for me recently making a shift and, you know, being able to call the Holy spirit, she or her, like that's been just a really healing shift for me and doesn't take away from who God is in my faith journey. Um, So I think that openness and in our healing journeys, but also which coincides with our faith journeys has been a healing process for me. Um, Not being so strict to the ways that culturally we have been told it's supposed to be done this way or said this way, or um, yeah, knowing that there are safe, messy spaces. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think has been really helpful to me for sure. In Kat's book, she talks about the power of shared trauma. Where we do have connections as survivors, we've been through similar things. Our stories are all different, but we do share a lot of things in common. And sometimes healing can happen just by being together. And I'll be honest. I've seen it happen right before my eyes through this new program that we've launched this year called Unleash. Unleash is an eight-week survivor-created and survivor-led e-course. There's film, videos, stories, there's journal exercises, and then there's a virtual support group all here to support survivors on the healing journey from sexual abuse. I am leading a group with the one and only Mary O'Brien. (laughs) and also one of my favorite trauma therapists will be leading another one you can find out all the information on our website at iamonevoice.org just click on the banner that says unleash you'll find out all the different options the times of the groups the costs and everything and i'm going to tell you right now there is a little coupon code you can put in Friend fifty, I'll take fifty dollars off of your registration fee. We'd really love to have you join us. I think for many survivors, now's the time. It's the time to, to set aside some time for yourself and to really work on things that matter. Life is short, and now's the time to work on on our healing, and we can do it together. As Kat's talking about in her book. True peace can come when things like abuse and injustice and our trauma is really looked at. It's excavated and beautiful things can come out when we're willing to bring some of these things into the light. And I think now's the time. Let's do it. Let's do it together. So find out more, sign up the websites. I groups are starting the first week of September. So you better get in now and let's get back to Kat. You know, your book obviously talks a lot about learning from women who are, or have been marginalized. And I'm wondering for those listening, what would you share with them as far as how can we be purposeful about learning from marginalized people? If, because I think proximity is so very important. Um, And you even talked about that a little bit in your book. Mm -hmm. I remember you referencing, I think Brian Stevenson, his book, just, Mm -hmm. you know, how compassion comes from the root word womb. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that and like our fight, our fight for justice, our fight to find our voice, our fight to change abuse in the church or whatever requires us to be up close and personal. And Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, like, you know, just to give some pointers to people who are struggling to find that proximity or are afraid at, you know, I don't know, you know who I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. 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 Um yeah, this is a good question. So there's um something that as I was as I was reflecting on this as I was writing Um, One of the things that I was thinking about was this idea of, you know, hospitality and how we want to, when we want to be proximate to someone, we still want to position ourselves as the givers. We want to position ourselves as the ones in control or in charge. Mm. And I speak for myself, you know, many of us, and again, in varying levels of privilege and, and power. And um, and something as I was, you know, reflecting on how to really lean into this abuelita sort of faith, um, maybe those of us and and when I refer to abuelita theology or abuelita faith, I'm not necessarily meaning just biological grandmothers. I, I mean, of course, I am, but I'm also just, you know, abuelita theologians in in society, abuelita theologians in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Um, and yeah, one of the things that I was really reflecting on is this idea of of like a decolonized view of discipleship, right? And I I mentioned this in my book, but it's this idea that when we are proximate, what does our proximity look like? I mean, are we still are we still the, the hosts? Are we the ones that are hosting the dinners? Are we the ones that are are making sure that we're in charge or in control and people are stepping into our space? Um, or, or are we allowing ourselves to be guests at unfamiliar tables, whether that be a guest at an unfamiliar church space or an unfamiliar, I mean whatever it is, but allowing ourselves um to just be a guest, allowing other people um to serve us in love love us and, um, give of themselves to us. And I think that, you know, many Christian spaces, um, many privileged Christians want to be the ones to serve and to give and to, you know, all the things. Um, but what if we, we turn that on its head and we allowed, those in, you know, in our, in our communities or those um, with less power and privilege than us to be the ones to host us, to be the ones um, yeah. To, to serve Mm. us. Right. Um, I think that could be a place that we start. Um, And, and when we allow folks um, to love us and to serve us and to care for us, you know, Jesus cared for folks, but Jesus was also cared for by folks. Right. Mm. Um, I think that when we, you know, allow that switch, that power dynamic, you know, to kind of switch, then I think that we're at a position where we can learn from, um, you know, marginalized, whether it be women or just people in general in our society that we can, um, yeah, uh, just switch that power dynamic and allow ourselves to, to be taught. Um, uh, but only if we're allowed to be cared for and mm. allowed to be loved. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. In your book, you, you talked about the Mesa, the table, yeah. I, I really did appreciate that. And, you know, just got a real picture of, of, yeah, being able to meet with the the people in my own city, right? Or anyone's right. own city that they don't look like you, they don't live like you, but yet you can sit at their table and allow them to show you right. how they live right. versus the, the you know, the white savior complex. I think exactly. we so often get in the church. Um, right.
1: Yeah. Like come into my space, um, you know, so right. I can let me, me show you, you.
0: Right. how you're supposed to live. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Gosh. I saw um, a quote today on Instagram. It said, don't go across the world on mission trips for photo ops with Brown kids that you would villainize if they lived in the bad part of your own city. Oh, I was yeah. like, Oh wow. That really hit deep, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So much that That's we so have common. to, yeah. Yeah. And just looking at how we do colonize and um, yeah, the proximity. And I I know you've recently, I don't know if you still are now that you've moved, but we're working pretty closely with LGBT youth. And I thought that was really, you know, I think that's really telling because so many in the church, they will have certain ideas about specific groups that are also very marginalized and they won't take the time to get to know any, you know,
1: right. Right. when you do, it changes everything. Oh yeah. 100%. Mm. I think that that is something, um, particularly for Christians, I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, we feel like we have all the answers to all the things. Um, but yeah, something changes when you, um, just allow those sort of predisposed ideas of what people are supposed to think or how they're supposed to be you kind of let, you know, I, I like to say that we we need to allow God to be big, right? <laughs> like yeah. the bigness of God, um, Love that. because a lot of times we don't have big views of God. Um, and I think that getting to know folks um, and hearing their stories and allowing those, you know, whatever to be shattered, I think that that will, yeah, give us a bigger picture of who God is, um, a truer picture of who God is. That's right. As I was reading, I had taken
0: a note. Where I, I said, and I, you, pro- it's probably a direct quote, but I wrote down: Liberation comes when we are allowed to see God move in spaces we were taught He couldn't from the dominant right. culture. Oh yeah, I mean that's such a really powerful message from your book, and a powerful message that I think will bring liberation to all if we would just allow God to be as big as He really is.
1: Right, right. Mm. Yeah, I, I mentioned the story in my book, and I've I've tweeted about this, and you know, written about this, but. Um one of my favorite examples of that in the Bible is when um, uh, Paul has a vision of a man begging him to go to Macedonia and saying, Come to Macedonia, we need your help. And when he arrives to the region that is Macedonia, which is Philippi, he he's introduced to women, a group of you know what I call awalita theologians just praying. And from there, you know, the church has started in that region. Yes. And I think like, man, like what? that's so telling of who God is to, you know, be like, Hey, come here. Here's, here's what you're going to meet when you come here. And then it's entirely not what you expect. And again, (laughs) it's kind of like that, like, you know, the, the note that you wrote, um, which is something that I really harp on in my book is just this Mm -hmm. idea that, yeah, God, you know, meets us or God just works through unexpected people and unexpected places and, you know, we miss out when we're not willing to to look or, or notice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So much of, I think, not only personal healing, but also cultural healing and, you know, family healing is about right. noticing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're so busy that we don't take the time to notice, you know, things that are around us or the little thing that the person said that they were really, you know, I I even think about growing up, I was sexually abused in my own home for 10 years. And the number of times I was hinting that something wasn't right, not, you know, not just to my mom, but to my coaches, to my teachers, Mm. and how many times that was overlooked because people aren't noticing, they don't know what to look for. And um, there's so much of that, you know, it can go in so many different areas of, of just, feeling overlooked. And when we notice someone, what that can even say to someone, looking someone in the eyes, that's different right. than you, that can do a lot. I mean, yeah. that could be a lifelong friendship that you're missing out on if you can't be willing to stoop right, to, stop and, to stoop yeah. low and, mm-hmm. and to listen and to, and to notice. Um, so one of my favorite parts of your book, I'm sure you know what it is, you said, I wonder what our world would look like if sexual abuse in the church were more infuriating to Christians, particularly Christian women, than Latinas dancing on a stage. Because you unpacked a little bit of, of J-Lo and Shakira yeah. um, at the Super Bowl, which yeah, I personally love. But And you said, as with most injustices in our society, it's easier to blame the individual than the system, because blaming the system means we all play a part. In upholding it, and are thus accountable. Oh, it's so good that whole section. I was just like hooting and hollering over here in Ohio. I'm sure you heard me. Um, <laughs> yeah, could you just talk a little bit more about that? I just it would just I think mean a lot to a lot of our listeners just to hear you kind of yeah with that battle cry.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, that was sort of sparked from, um, the halftime show, the JLo and Shakira halftime show, which I I don't think I'm still, I'm over yet. I mean, writing it in the book helped, but, um, yeah, I was just really appalled, um, throughout that whole time. Um, and I literally had nothing to say. Like, it was one of those things that I was like, I have no comment. I have nothing to say. Um, because I just could not believe, you know, what everyone else was saying, right. so I said nothing for months. And then I was like, "I'm going to write a blog post." And I was like, "No, I'm going to," you know. And so I kept like going back and forth of like, "I need to get out my feelings." Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of happened in the book. I didn't, again, I didn't intend for that to happen. It just sort yeah. of did. And then, okay. you know, uh, but anyway, uh, all that to say that that yeah, I mean, there were so many things. There were so many um moving pieces to that um you know I start by talking about colonization um you know and, and and again, if we're speaking about systemic things versus individual things, you know it's so easy to look at a woman um, who is you know just being her full self, her talented full self doing her professional job on stage and to look at this as some sort of individual problem well she's so sexual, whatever, um, rather than really take a long, hard look at why we would think that take a long, hard look at the hypersexualization of black and Brown women, of women in general, um, of really going back, you know, all the way back to, um, well, where did this start and how did this start and how have we all played a role, um, in upholding it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and the reason why I mentioned particularly Christian women is because I saw so many. Women, you know, right. really just saying so yeah. much about this. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I even think, women survivors of sexual trauma will say things. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, it's yeah. It's very sad to me. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is, and I think that that's, um, because I mean we're so you know embedded in this individualistic view of things, um, and so many things. That's not the only thing, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah. that's part of it. You know, it's an individualistic view of you know, um, of sin. I mean, I don't know. There's so many different things that you can call it. Right. Um, but when we yeah, zoom out and we take a broader look, um, mm-hmm. we realize that, no, this is a, it's a system that's been in place for a while. It's a system of hierarchy and of domination and of whiteness and of colonization mm. and of people taking bodies that they think that belong to them. And right. it's a system of, you know, and I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think that when we are able to zoom out and take a look at the system, the systemic issues that we, you know, that lead us to say something at, or lead us to be as infuriated as we were at JLo and Shakira just literally dancing at a halftime show. I think if we were to zoom out and see what what's making us so angry about this, um, there would be a lot of other things to to dissect and a lot of other things. Um yeah, to look into so that was sort of you know yeah. what was behind me writing that
0: yeah and then our girl Lo has to hold all of our anger about generations of sexism <laughs> and racism I'm like poor girl she's just talented out there right like, <laughs> like she's just like really good at what she does <laughs> right as yeah. to what she's been taught will pay the bills right oh my goodness <laughs> Well, I I did really like I have two more topics I I was hoping to hit you with. Okay, so um, I loved how you talked about how our bodies tell stories. Mm -hmm. Um, You said even about the divine and that we are we need to listen to that. Um, I think that's a really hard thing for those of us who have been traumatized intimately, Mm -hmm. sexually with our bodies. Um, Many of us are disconnected and it's hard to listen um right. but then we live in a culture that also like just reinforces this fragmented identity mm-hmm. that so many of us are living um right I'm wondering particularly as it relates to abuse how do you feel like we can come back to ourselves as whole you know show up despite the culture constantly
1: trying to get us to remain small and fragmented mm-hmm. Yeah. um, Oh, that's, it's, it's hard when we do live in a society that is so disembodied and um, is so, you know, fragmented, as you mentioned, Um, Mm -hmm. it's hard to be whole persons. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, whether that be spiritually, you know, whatever it is, you know, we're, we're taught to have, you know, to live with different parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. um, pulled apart, you know. Um, But I think for me, um as i was reflecting on this and writing this book i think what helped me sort of think of myself as a whole person is you know a the the idea of our ancestors right the idea that we're not um individual people the idea mm-hmm. that we come from generations of people um you know that have again survived or, or generations of people um that we we stand on their shoulders we stand on the the faith that they have passed on to us and mm-hmm. the resilience and the resistance and persistence and yeah. so thinking of ourselves as 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 we're, we're not alone in this um yeah. yeah. literally you know literally but yeah. also we you know we are tethered um to generations of women that come before us so that's something that you know mm-hmm. also um you know reflecting on a, an embodied sort of theology, an embodied way of living, how we are connected to the land, how we are connected to mm. the earth. I talk about that in my book, you know, quite yeah. a bit of just the, the connection that we have, um, the mm. interconnectedness with, with land and with animals and with, mm. uh, you know, other people and with, um, the dirt. Right. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think, you know, going back to sort of your question of, or your initial point of our bodies mm-hmm. tell stories, I think, mm. um, you know, because And and I do mention that in the same chapter of the JLo and and Shakira about how, you know, the body has always been a sort of a a means of of an expression of joy and liberation. And we see this in so many spaces where there's joy, there's dance and where there's freedom, there's movement. Um, But that's why even thinking about slavery, why the body was subjugated, you know, because when you kill, when you subjugate the body, you subjugate the spirit and the soul Mm -hmm. and they're all connected. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I do have a chapter on dance and how we Mm -hmm. can connect to God through the movement of our bodies. And so maybe it is even um, reconnecting with our bodies in in that way. How do we use our hands or use our bodies um, to to learn more about ourselves, whether that is through dance and, you know, I have a chapter on sewing and my grandmother sewed. And, and that was mm-hmm. for me, you know, now looking back, cause like you in the moment, I wasn't like, wow, you know, like really reflecting on the depth of who she was, but yeah. thinking about how, you know, hands create and hands hold wisdom, you know yeah. um, and and our, our bodies, you know, bring forth life. And, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant now. And so I've been thinking about this, but not only for, people who birth but you know we've all been through the birthing process we've all been birthed into this world and and just thinking so much about how you know how much wisdom our bodies hold um mm-hmm. they're not told what to do but they do the things that they need to do and we grow and we heal and we you know all these things without being told how in many ways um yeah. and so yeah so i think that when we can you know, again, zoom out, have a holistic picture of, um, you know, connecting, whether it's with the land or connecting with our ancestors or connecting with our bodies through um, movement. I think that these are all ways that we can begin to, you know, sort of heal that disembodiment um, in in different ways. It's going to look different for everyone, of course.
0: Growing up in, you know, conservative, evangelical Christianity, I was often taught that a lot of these things were pagan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a lot of these ancestral indigenous type practices, you know, not to mention the American public school system, you know, teaching us, you know, Chris Columbus is a hero. And then, you know, yeah. the Native Americans are our enemy, like all of these crazy things I'm trying to like right. get rid of and and learn. And it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like, I don't, I couldn't sleep. There's, there's so much to learn right now. There's so much to relearn and to get rid of from what I was taught. And yeah, just this whole idea of like, we're from the earth and we get back to the earth and like the land and whose land are we on and all of these things. And then even just like connecting with nature, like these our new practices for me only because I'm now allowing my mind to expand that healing can come in these messy, scattered places that Mm -hmm. God is actually bigger than all of these little tiny constructs and huge walls that I've built um, to contain him. And so as I'm doing all of these things, I'm, I'm also noticing more. And so Mm -hmm. I can go out and be in nature and find, you know, that God's meeting me there. It's a divine moment Mm -hmm. of healing. I can, I can, um, I can replace old trauma with like these new birthed ideas and new perspectives. And um, gosh, yeah, there's, I just, I'm wondering, and my question is, (laughs) okay. My question (laughs) would be, do you think that there was a, that this was all like colonization? that this idea that these things were very pagan it was anti-Christ it was not of God it was demonic like but yet now we're kind of learning no actually they're not (laughs) and they're actually like healing and God can be in all of these spaces was that colonization and like what was the purpose
1: control yeah uh, yes um yes to all of it no but um <laughs> okay so I, I just need you to sign off on yeah. my thoughts <laughs> <laughs> well i do think a lot of it stems from colonization 100 and i think um so for example um i try and in Awalita faith sort of reclaim a lot of these things um and one example is the midwifery right in the ancient world right so i look at shipram who were midwives and you know, we would look at something like practices that they engage in. So midwifery in the ancient world, it was a spiritual practice. They were spiritual leaders. I mean, when you would, when they would bring forth a child into the world, they would do rituals and they would cleanse them in certain ways. And it was, you know, sort of this offering up to God. And so we have this story of these two midwives who are spiritual leaders. I mean, they would be akin to what today we would think would be a sort of pagan, you know, new agey thing.
0: Um,
1: And they are the ones who save Moses and God blesses them with more, you know, and so they are a huge part of the story. Mm. Um, But we don't understand, you know, the depth of that because the way that we've been taught the story is not that they were spiritual healers and that they were, you know, what would be considered sort of pagan women, you know, witches or whatever you want to call it. Maybe, I don't know. Right. Um, And so that's one example of how, we're so disconnected um, from so many of these things. You know, another example that I use um, is like the idea of, of um, essential oils and how yes. I mean these are <laughs> these are literally African spiritual practices yeah. that we have in the Western world literally completely completely taken over, adopted, co-opted. Yeah we've taken a huge aspect of African spirituality, which is herbalism and, and these things, yeah. and then literally demonize the people they come yeah. from and, you know, created our own cult with yes. with essential oils. We called it witchcraft. <laughs> right, and then now right, we're doing right.
0: it in the form of like pyramid scheme. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs>
1: which is a cult, no, kidding, but yes. so So all of that to say, um, that 100%, I believe that a lot of it is stemmed from, from colonization, from, you know, the the European person coming in to these cultures, demonizing the cultures that, that are, you know, that they are introduced to, but taking their practices because their practices have proved to be helpful and not just helpful, but spiritual and beautiful. And, and, and so embodied in so many things, um, you know, just the, when I think of, um, so many aspects in the Bible. And I I tweet about this a lot, or I'll I'll post it on Instagram, but you know how Jesus was so connected to nature. Jesus would say, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds Mm -hmm. of the sky, Mm -hmm. right? Like Jesus was connected to these things, but we, as you know, in Western, as Western people, we, you know, sort of ripped that from what, you know, the depth of what Jesus meant when he said these things, you know, I think of, um, and and I've posted about this before, but I love in the stories in the Bible when characters like Moses or Isaac or Jacob, when they have a a supernatural encounter And in the moment they don't know it's supernatural, they're out in nature, they're out, you know, somewhere they see a burning bush or, you know, which is, which are things that are very, um, I don't know, things that we would encounter out in nature that we wouldn't particularly encounter in church or that we Mm -hmm. wouldn't be considered a Christian thing. And they encounter God in this sacred way. They don't realize it in the moment. They have to think about it. And they say, oh, wait a minute. That was God. Like that was a, that was a sacred moment. And then they'll build an altar, right? They'll put rocks together and build an altar. Mm-hmm. and say like oh you know to commemorate the sacredness of that moment, moment yeah. and ha- you know if we were to see that happening now what would we think about it you know people mm-hmm. creating altars right now it is a sort of pagan thing you know um but they were sacred and holy moments in scripture and so Um, I love to look back at the Bible and sort of reclaim these moments because, of course, Christians are obsessed with the Bible, you know, or or want to follow what the Bible says. And so I like to point back and say, hey, but look, Mm -hmm. these practices are in scripture and they were beautiful and they were holy it's, it it is just the white European Western way of thinking that has demonized it. But why are we so, you know, again, going back to this idea of the bigness of God, um, we need to be able to see God as big. If we believe all the things that we say about God, that God is all knowing and all this and all that, um, then why wouldn't God be present in (laughs) these things? Right. Why wouldn't God, I mean, you know, we, we, we hear so much about nature and creation and Genesis and, Mm -hmm. and why would that not matter to God? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. When it did matter, you know, to many people throughout history. So, That's right. yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. It absolutely <laughs> does. Uh, it's very helpful. I, I just think it
0: brings us back to the bigness and the greatness and the right. grandiose of God, but also, you know, the the personal part two where you know he can meet us in the life of a bee on the flower petal that oh yeah you know what i mean and i love that about i think where a lot of especially survivors of abuse are are at right now where um you know the world's been really triggering in the last year and um isolating and there's a lot of us who are really kind of going back in our healing and saying, I want to, I want to kind of like do this part a little bit differently this time. I want to be a little bit more open. And um, you know, we've been, I during the course of COVID, I started this new online curriculum for survivors to um, you know, they go through videos and there's contemplative journal prompts that they do on their own. And then we meet together um, in online support groups and it, I think the contemplative journal part has been really great. Specifically, it's not faith-based material. Um, you know, I am a Christian and, and and that's a big part of it. But the whole course is about just being willing to um, open our minds to what maybe yeah. could be bigger than what yeah. we were taught healing looks like in the church. So many oh, yeah you know, have, have come to this idea that it's supposed to be this step, this step, this step, and it has to be confined to this and you have to do this part before this part. But um, it's been really cool to watch. I think those who have felt very fragmented and very controlled in their healing to be more open to yeah. What God might actually be saying and doing in this moment oh, yeah. and paying attention and, and listening to other stories, too, I think has
1: been really important. Yeah. 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 I mean, something that I've been um, a practice that I've been engaging in is is, yeah, kind of like you mentioned, like just trying to be present um, to how God might be speaking to me through things that I may not have thought God would speak to me through. And so yeah. um, for example, a few mm. months ago, my cat died and that was so Aww, hard for me you know, I was so sad. And so yeah. she loved to lay in like a little uh, ray of sun. And so I would sit down and, and I still do this. And, you know, when I see a little ray of sun, I think about her and I say, yeah. Oh, you know, and I, I offer up a prayer and I'm like, thank you, you know, and, and, and I think mm. about God and I reflect on the divine and I reflect on just, you know, whatever. And so, you know, trying to be present in little ways like that. And like you mentioned, like the bee on the flower, I mean, if we don't, if we really think about it, that is a beautiful and sacred and divine thing. We just don't understand it because we're humans and whatever, you know, but so much is happening in that moment. And I think that, yeah, it's allowing ourselves Mm -hmm. um, to find healing um, through, you know, creation through so many aspects of our world that are, moving and buzzing and, and happening around us. So much life is happening around us. And I think that that, you know, is a spiritual practice for sure. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, contemplative life for sure.
0: Yeah. Mm. That brings me to probably my last question only to be fair for your time. Um, <laughs> Cause I feel like I could talk to you forever. You talked in your book about shared trauma, the power of shared trauma. And specifically, I love the dominoes story. That you shared, and thinking about again trauma or abuse survivors, could you talk about what the power of shared trauma, I guess, means for you? What maybe you learn from it? Uh, how it can bring healing, um, or maybe even you know how you would recommend others taking some of those first steps to letting people sit in shared trauma.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So the story of you mentioned of dominoes. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, and I don't want of- you to
0: give your whole book away either, oh, no. you know, but I just think that's <laughs> such a powerful point for those who do have trauma. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um. So dominoes was, you know, a, a huge thing for, for me growing up. And it was, um, I mean, like religiously, my family would play dominoes, like you know, every weekend with all of our family members and they would be up until four in the morning. And it was just like a thing, you know, yeah. and that's, it's funny because if you walk through the streets of Miami and I mentioned this in my book um, I mean, there are literally, there's an entire area in little Havana where people, there's just domino tables and people are just playing dominoes, you know, all yeah. the time. And, that's um, cool. and I was reflecting a lot on that, you know, uh, and yeah. what is it like, why is this such a big thing or, or what is this to the Cuban uh, community or to Cuban culture that is so important. So, you know, cause it's not, it's something that I, I, I sort of reflect on is it's not just a game, like there's something mm-hmm. more to it. Um, yeah it's not just something silly or no, you know, there's, there's truth telling that happens in the domino table and there's um, yeah, just so much that happens um, sitting in those tables um, for decades, right. Cause you're sitting in the same table and you're playing with the same people almost for literally decades. <laughs> um, and as I was reflecting, you know, I thought, man, you know, this is a space um, where healing happens because mm-hmm. it's a space where People have been through a shared trauma. People have been through, you know, they have a, a something that that sort of binds them together, and this is a space where they can come together um, and just be right. Like just sort of just. Be. And not necessarily. I mean, they're not talking about a part. You know, not necessarily talking about their trauma or not necessarily whatever. But they're being who they are, and they there's it's a safe space because they've all been through the same things, obviously in different ways. But they've yeah. all been through a shared experience together, and so they can just be and just heal. I was actually talking to a friend of mine a black friend of mine uh, who read the book and, and they said something about, well, it's similar to like a certain card game in the black community and how, you know, they, there's like this, where they grew up, it was like this card game that they would play and they would all come together. And, and it was sort of the same idea, you know, mm-hmm. all of the oppression and all of the, the, the sh- stuff we've been through um, yeah. together, this <laughs> is a space where we can come and we can just be, and we can, um you know, just it's safe because we all know and we all understand and we're all seen and we're all heard in this space. And so, yeah. So I just think that that is important, I think for, especially those of us who live in a very individualistic society, right? right. To be able to just be and come together and, and maybe it doesn't always look like having to, to sort of sift through the pain or whatever, but just have a place where we can all just come together and, know that we're we're known and we're understood in that space yeah
0: yeah yeah I think there's a lot of power in that for a lot of us um I guess before we hear about all the ways to connect with you and um I, I would definitely want everyone to get your book at bully to faith Kat Armas you are amazing um okay. I'm wondering I know you're about to be a mother
1: yeah. how is
0: this all of this work informing you as a mom like do you feel like Like, are you feeling like you'll be very intentional about passing down certain things from your abuelita? Um, Is it, is that going to be in the form of storytelling or like, what does that look like for you just as you at the surface, think about it?
1: Yeah. That's such a good question. Thank you for asking um, because I have, you know, obviously been reflecting so much on it. I'm sure um, reflecting so much on, yeah. What, what is it that I do want to pass on or what is yeah. being passed on without my even, you know, really right. knowing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I um, think a lot about is in, and I've been thinking about this too, because my father-in-law recently passed and mm-hmm. um, unexpectedly. And so we've just been reflecting a lot on, you know, again, our ancestors, right. And what, what sort of um, who they were and how that lives within us, you know, um, my, my father-in-law, he was, he lived on land and he, you know, he Mm -hmm. was very dedicated to the earth and he had cows and he, you know, had a very reciprocal relationship with the land. And And I love that that will live inside of my daughter, whether, you know, Mm -hmm. she may be aware of it right away or not. And I think the same thing with, you know, when I think of an Awalita faith, I mean, again, she, she's she's coming from a lineage she's tethered to a lineage of women um, who have survived a lineage of women who have provided for their families a lineage of women who have fought who have um, told the truth a lineage of women who and I want her to know that she has that strength in her uh, because she won't always feel it and she yeah. won't always you know um, right off the bat I think it took a while for me to to really, um, sit in the, in the weight of that, in the weight of, of no, this isn't my DNA, you know, survival and, yeah. um and persistence and resistance. Like this is literally who I am. You know, these are yeah. things that uh, I don't exist outside of them. And I may not be connected to it in the moment, but if I'm intentional about um, drawing on the strength of my ancestors and drawing on the strength of Abuelita theologians and in the Bible and beyond, um, then, then I think that, that I can there's so much that I can do with that. And so I, I want my daughter to know that that she mm-hmm. um is tethered to to generations of of you know women and is tethered to the land and the dirt, you know, from as the Bible says, you know, from from dirt, you came into dirt, you will return or whatever, you know, that exact verse, which I think is so beautiful. You know, I want her to to stick her hands in the dirt and know that that's where she comes from. And that's where she'll return. That's a beautiful living, you know, sacred thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I want to pass on the sort of these, these ideas of, of being interconnected, full embodied beings um, that Mm -hmm. we're not, we don't just exist. We don't just sort of float as individual people, but it, there, there's a system that that functions in our world and um and for better or worse right because we're responsible True. to that system um mm-hmm. but also yeah. um it gives us strength and, and all these things so yeah, yeah. And
0: agency wow right well she's got an incredible example set before her Thank i'm really so excited much. yeah for both of you so what a what a really yeah. cool thing for you to have a daughter and right after mm-hmm. your first
1: Birth book. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's I say it's a my first bio, uh, literary child and then my first biological one. <laughs> That's
0: exactly right. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kat. This has really been such a sweet time. And uh, yeah. um, I've learned a lot. I really have. And it's um, continued to inform a lot of the things that I feel like I've already been wrestling with on my own faith journey. And um, it's brought me a lot of hope and clarity. And um, yeah. A lot of peace, which, yeah. you know, in essence is really what your book kind of was trying to get at was just that, you know, peace, peace comes when it, injustice is um, excavated. Mm. I loved how you mm. said that. And yeah, yep. so please Thank let everybody know how to contact you. And um, also you have a podcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let people um, know
0: so they can subscribe to yours as well.
1: For sure. Well, um, thank you for engaging so well with my book. I loved, um, yeah, just hearing your thoughts and how you wrestled with things, particularly from your, you know, social location and from the things that you are passionate about. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you so much. But, um, folks can find me at catarmus.com is my website. Um, uh, so if you just want to kind of peek in there, I have links to my book, um, to purchase it. If you don't want to do Amazon, (laughs) there are other (laughs) links there. Um, also social media at, you know, cat underscore Armis on uh, Twitter and Instagram, mm-hmm. <laughs> Twitter and Instagram. Um, and yeah, and my podcast is the protagonistas, the protagonistas. Um and you can find that on any podcast, you know, wherever you find your podcast. Awesome. I'm glad that you said your podcast name because one of my goals in life is to roll
0: my R's the way you just did. But
1: <laughs> yeah, I've got
0: some good time and practice, but I'll just keep wearing my hoops until that. So. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. Thank you, you are amazing. Thank well, you so much. Yes. I hope that our paths cross in the future. Yes. So, take care. Hey, YouTube,
1: Bye.